Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin what is at stake is more than one small country it is a big idea a new world order it's no longer a theory what i'm about to say is fact the secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, geopolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome oddities to another oddcast featuring me, the odd man out. As always, I really appreciate you taking your time to hang out with me And listen to me ramble on about hidden history, the occult, or whatever we end up talking about. It means a lot to me, and I hope that it means something to you. As I always say, I hope that I can provide some information that you can take with you, and not just instantly forget, but remember this historic information, and hopefully discuss it with your friends and family, co-workers, whoever else, and maybe it will help you you know, just a little bit to figure out this crazy, insane world that we live in. Now, this episode, we're going to be looking once again at the Jesuits. It's the company you keep, number two. And we're going to get into some more of the controversial aspects of the Jesuits. But with these Jesuit episodes, I want to kind of bring a little bit different perspective, perhaps, than you've heard before. As I said, we're going to talk about the controversies, the conspiracies, but like on the first one, we brought some kind of the average cookie-cutter information about the Jesuits. But with any group, most likely, there's going to be good and bad. And with a group that's been around so long and has been connected to such a powerful, powerful entity like the Catholic Church, the Vatican, and popes, of course there's going to be bad along with the good. Now, I presume that there are thousands of good Jesuits and people who've been educated at Jesuit schools, high schools, colleges, that are fantastic people. There are many, many great Catholic people out there. So, you know, it's it's all about how you take apart this information and the things you can corroborate and the things that you can't. And that's kind of where I'm leading this show in general is trying to figure out what we can kind of prove and what is just hearsay, what's just 
things that people have said and made up and built upon over the years and decades, what have you. So with this week's episode, I'm going to be starting off with a little bit of information by Nesta Webster. Now, she wrote a famous book called Secret Societies and Subversive Movements, but she wrote many other books. That's her most famous. And this is what she had to say about the Jesuits. The Jesuits, unlike the Templars and the Illuminati, were simply suppressed in 1773 without the formality of a trial and were therefore never given the opportunity to answer the charges brought against them, nor in the case of these other orders were there secret statutes, if any such existed, brought to light. The only document ever produced in proof of these accusations was the Manita Secrata, long since shown to be a forgery. At any rate, the correspondence of the Illuminati provides their best exoneration. The Marquis de Luce, who was no friend of the Jesuits, shows the absurdity of confounding their aims with those of either the Freemasons or the Illuminati and describes all three as animated by wholly different purposes. Now, I think this is really, really key here. In all these questions, it is necessary to seek a motive. I have no personal interest in defending the Jesuits, but I ask, what motive could these Jesuits have in forming or supporting a conspiracy directed at all thrones and altars? It has been answered to me that the Jesuits at this period cared nothing for thrones and altars, but only for temporal power. Yet, even accepting this unwarrantable hypothesis, how was this power to be exercised except through thrones and altars? Was it not through the princes and the church that the Jesuits had been able to bring their influence to bear on affairs of the state? An irreligious republic, as events afterwards proved, the power of the whole clergy was bound to be destroyed. The truth is, then, that far from abetting the Illuminati, the Jesuits were their most formidable opponents, the only body of men sufficiently learned, astute, and well-organized enough to outwit the schemes of Weishaupt. In suppressing the Jesuits, it is possible that the old regime removed the only barrier capable of resisting the tide of revolution. In order to organize, to develop, and arrive at this end, Mirabeau invokes the example of the Jesuits. We have quite contrary views, he says, that of enlightening men and of making them free and happy. But we must and we can do this by the same means. And who should prevent us from doing good what the Jesuits have done for evil? And we know that Mirabeau was one of the leaders of the French Revolution. And we're going to be talking more about Nesta Webster and some of her information as we go on in this episode. Now I want to go to a couple of paragraphs of quotes by the famous or infamous Jesuit who left the group, Malachi Martin. And he's a very controversial figure. People have different ideas about whether he was legit, whether he was not. But I think that there's no, there's no way you can't say he was very intelligent, a great writer, and knew a lot about the Jesuits and the Catholic Church in its inside workings. He says on page 35 of his book of 
about the Jesuits. Inigo, that was the actual real name of Ignatius Loyola before he became a saint. Inigo founded his company of Jesus, as he originally called it, for one purpose, to be the defender of the church and the papacy. The Pope, who brought the order into official existence in the 16th century, made that purpose the mission of the society and the reason for its existence. As an institution, it has always been bound to the papacy. Its professed members have always been bound to the Pope by a sacred oath of absolute obedience. For 425 years, they stood at the papacy's side, fought its battles, taught its doctrines, suffered its defeats, defended its positions, shared its power, were attacked by its enemies, and constantly promoted its interests all over the globe. They were regarded by many as they regarded themselves as the Pope's men, and the many extraordinary privileges granted by popes over the centuries were as badges of the trust the papacy placed in the society. Later on in the book, he says, Holy Father, we can accurately paraphrase their hard-headed proposal to the beleaguered Pope Paul III. The papacy and the Roman Catholic Church are in mortal trouble. Needed is a modern weapon to fight this totally new warfare. Give us, as a group of companions, a new charter like no other charter given before to a religious order of men. Free us from strict monastic life, its rules, its formal clothes, its traditional methods. Make us independent of all local authorities and directly responsible to your holiness only. Set us up as a special group of the Pope's men, his soldiers, with a new purpose serving under your holiness, the Roman pontiff, to defend and propagate the faith, and let us bind ourselves in a new manner to your holiness and to all your successors in the papacy. Allow us to take a special vow of absolute obedience on our sacred oath directly to your holiness, to the effect that without demur or protest, we will go anywhere, at any time, at any cost to life and comfort in order to do anything your holiness deems necessary for the defense and propagation of the faith. Well, that is pretty, pretty heavy there, right? And that kind of leads to some of the conspiracies that we've heard over the decades. We look to another person who wrote a lot about the Catholic Church and some about the Jesuits, and he was attacked by the Catholic Church for sure. That was Tupper Saucy from his book, Rulers of Evil. He says here, On August 15, 1534, East Day of the Assumption of the Virgin into Heaven, the Companions swore oaths of service to the Blessed Virgin in St. Marie's Church at Montmartre and to St. Denise, patron saint of the Errants, in his chapel. The experience of the Montmartre oaths must have been intense for Arancis Xavier, who would become St. Arancis, apostle to the East, made the spiritual exercises with his penitential fervor, says Broderick, in Origin of the Jesuits, that nearly cost him the use of his limbs. They vowed poverty, chastity, and to rescue Jerusalem from the Muslims. However, 
Should the rescue prove infeasible within a year, they vowed to undertake without question whatever other task the Pope might require of them. A couple pages down, he says, when Ignatius concluded his presentation, the Pope reportedly cried out, Hoc est digitus Dei. This is the finger stroke of God. On September 27, 1540, Paul sealed his approval with the highest and most solemn form of papal pronouncement, a document known as a bull from the Latina bulla, meaning bubble, denoting the attached ovoid or circular seal bearing the Pope's name. That's what they mean by a papal bull. Paul's bull ordaining the Jesuits is entitled Regimini Militantis Ecclesia, on the supremacy of the church militant. Remember, we talked a little bit about that bull on the first episode. Saucy says the title forms a capitalistic device common to pagan Roman divining known as the Notaricon. This device is an acronym that enhances the meaning of its initialized words in the way MAD, M-A-D-D, tells us that mothers against drunk drivers are more than against drunk drivers. They are very angry. Regimini Militantis Ecclesia produces the Notaricon, Rome, R-O-M-E, the empire whose salvation the Society of Jesus was ordained by this bull to secure through the arts of war. On the next page, he says, It was hard for ordinary citizens to tell which were Jesuits and which were not. Not even Jesuits could say for sure because of the provision in the constitutions, which authorized the superior general to receive agents, both priestly agents to help in his spiritual matters, and lay agents to give aid in temporal and domestic functions, called coadjutors. You'll hear Johnny Cerucci and others talk about Jesuit coadjutors a lot. It's the Jesuits who are not priests. They haven't went through all the training. These lay agents could be of any religious denomination, race, nationality, or sex. They took an oath which bound them for whatever time the superior general of the society should see fit to employ them in spiritual or temporal services. We're talking about the black pope who is the superior general of the Jesuits. This provision was availed by so many black popes that the French had a name for people suspected of being Jesuit agents, les robes petites, or short robes. The English called them short coats or Ignatians. Saucy says the Council of Trent hurled 125 anathemas, eternal damnations, against Protestantism. Then, as an addendum to its closing statements, the council recommended that the Jesuits should be given pride of place over members of other orders as preachers and professors. It was at Trent that the Roman Catholic Church began marching to the beat of the Black Papacy. We have to keep in mind that Saucy had a real beef with the Catholic Church. A generation later, the guidelines of the Roman Inquisition under Jesuit direction were published at the command of the Cardinal's Inquisitor General. The Directorium Inquisitorium of 1584 was dedicated to Pope Gregory, the Pope who bestowed upon the Jesuits the right to deal in commerce and banking, and who also decreed that every papal legate should have a Jesuit advisor on his personal staff. And then on the next page, Saucy says, The Inquisition's effect, of course, was to send the more resourceful of the heretics 
Protestants and liberals who escaped torture or execution scurrying underground or into the burgeoning world of commerce or into regions where Protestant civil authorities kept inquisitors at bay. Yearning for a less intrusive religious experience, they joined attractive philosophical fraternities where they could speak freely against Roman Catholicism. You have to think that he was talking about Freemasonry, or at least the groups that became Freemasonry, and perhaps the Rosicrucians as well. For this ostensible reason, these fraternities or cults or lodges operated in secrecy. In fact, they were remnants of the Templar network, Rosicrucians, Teutonic Knights, the numerous and various rites of Freemasonry. Like the Templars and the Jesuits, they were religious hierarchies of strict obedience. They differed from the Jesuits, however, in that their pyramid culminated in an ultimate authority no brother could identify with certainty. The highest master of a lodge received commandments from an unknown superior. This sounds like the Illuminati, right? A superior whose will the master's whole struggle up against the degrees had trained him to obey without question. What the masters never realized was that this mysterious personage, as we shall examine in more detail later, was in fact none other than the black pope. And we'll look at what Saucy says about that later on, and that goes directly against what Nesta Webster was saying at the first of the show. But I like to go down every avenue and get the different perspectives, as I said before. So a little bit more from Saucy here. It was inevitable that the Council of Trent would establish the Jesuits as the schoolmasters of Europe, with money from royalty and commerce and not so much as a thinning from the church. The society built an extensive system of schools and colleges. No tuition was charged, but each prospective student was thoroughly examined to see if he had the aptitudes the society could use. With the founding of the first Jesuit school at Coimbra, Portugal, by the emperor's youngest sister, Catherine, Inigo's romantic interest, who had since married the king of Portugal, the principal Jesuit occupation became teaching. By 1556, three-fourths of the society's membership were dedicated in 46 Jesuit colleges to learning against learning, to indoctrinating minds with the learning of the illuminated humanism as opposed to the learning of scripture. This network would expand by 1749 to 669 colleges, 176 seminaries, six houses of study, and 24 universities, partly or whole under Jesuit direction. Now, Saucy does mention something that I haven't looked into yet, but I will before we finish this episode. He says on page 77, We find in the Bible, Numbers 26.44, the mention of the Jesuits, or Jesuites. The Jesuits were the progeny of Jesua, whose name in Hebrew is Yeshivi, which means level. The Jesuits certainly leveled the Protestant menace. And you think about the compass and the level in Freemasonry. I just thought that was interesting. But we'll talk more about the connections to Freemasonry and Jesuitism as we go on in the episode. All right, guys, I want to talk a little bit more about the infamous Jesuit oath, the extreme Jesuit oath that we've talked about before. I just wanted to look a little bit deeper into it, and I found an interesting article 
called the Jesuit Oath Debunked. And it starts off like this. Sometimes one finds himself completely outside the realm of the possible and in the strange realm of the where in the heck did they come up with this stuff. The Jesuit Oath is one of such example. It is completely ludicrous and to believe that people actually believe this stuff is simply staggering. The Oath has been reincarnated in another popular version known as the Knight of Columbus Oath. However, we will deal strictly with the two versions of the oath that are most commonly cited. The first is located in the Library of Congress, and the second is located in the Congressional Record. The Jesuit oath found in the Library of Congress. This version of the secret oath is one of the two most popular versions cited. It is probably cited so often due to the fact that it can be found in the Library of Congress, Washington, D.C., in the Library of Congress catalog card number 66-43354. Anti-Catholics seem to believe that because it is found in the Library of Congress that it is a credible document, which I will show is not always a given. On the other hand, perhaps certain anti-Catholics wish to prey on ignorance and they know exactly what I am about to expose. But before I do... Here is a complete copy of the aforementioned oath, which we will not go over again because we've talked about it before. If you'd like to look it over yourself, that will be in the show notes. So at the end, the article goes on to say, So there you have it, the Jesuit oath found in the Library of Congress. Every time I see this oath used, the author, usually anti-Catholic, has relied on the fact that it can be found in the Library of Congress and that is some testament to the legitimacy and authority of said document. So to be sure that this was really the case, I went on an excursion to the Library of Congress website and had a look-see for myself. Now listen to this. At the Library of Congress, I was interested in how I could make a submission to the Library of Congress, and there I stumbled across a form FL-109, then it has a link to that, which speaks about copyrights. According to Form FL-109, three things are needed to obtain a copyright and obtain subsequent registration in the Library of Congress. They are as follows. Number one, a completed form called TX. Two, a non-refundable filing fee of $30. Three, a non-returnable deposit of the work. Form FL-109 also goes on to state at the very beginning, copyright registration of books, manuscripts, and speeches. A published or unpublished book or manuscript may be submitted for registration in the Copyright Office. Form TX should be used to apply for copyright registration for textual works, with or without illustrations, Form TX is appropriate for registration of non-dramatic literary works including fiction, nonfiction, poetry, contributions to collective works, compilations, directories, catalogs, dissertations, theses, reports, speeches, bound or loose-leaf volumes, pamphlets, brochures, and single pages containing text. There is no specific requirement as to the printing, binding, format, or paper size and quality of unpublished manuscript material. 
typewritten, photocopied, and legibly handwritten manuscripts, preferably in ink, are all accepted for deposit. And further, it says suitable for submission, question mark. Loose leaf scribblings are available for admission and will receive submission. According to the Library of Congress, they will in all for $30. So how credible is the Library of Congress registration sounding now? Not very authoritative, is it? I can imagine that just about everything and anything can and has been submitted to the Library of Congress, and since all it requires is $30 and some paperwork, one could put anything in it. I could very well make a statement scribbled on a piece of toilet paper that has some extremist non-Catholic oath on it and claim that this applies to all non-Catholics and that we should be weary of them. It would be just as credible at the Jesuit oath if the anti-Catholics apply the same criteria to my toilet paper as they do their precious Jesuit oath. Obviously, this person is coming from a Catholic point of view, but I think but again, I think it's good to get all of the different views, okay? The Jesuit oath found in the congressional record. Now, this is different. This is not the Library of Congress. This version of the Jesuit oath is another popular version and is quoted by such anti-Catholics as Ian Paisley. It is a part of the U.S. House Congressional Record 1913 on page 3216. This oath was originally made public in the year 1883. And again, I won't read it. It's pretty similar to the other one, actually, but this will be under evangelizationstation.com in the show notes. Now, once he gets done with the oath, he says, After being informed about the flimsiness of the Library of Congress, exactly how authoritative is the congressional record? Was the Jesuit oath revealed in the proceedings of the Congress as something to be weary of? The congressional record, the official record of the proceedings and debates of the United States Congress, it is published daily when Congress is in session. It is not a library. It is the responsibility of the government printing office, and the information can be accessed by going through the Federal Depository Libraries, an extension of the Library of Congress. You can't send or even submit things to the congressional record. The only way to get anything into the record is to have them said or entered into the record by a congressman. So exactly how did the Jesuit oath get into the congressional record in 1913? Here is the story. On SPH's board examining Protestantism in the 1912 elections, the two candidates for Congress from the 7th Congressional District in Pennsylvania were Eugene C. Bonnewell, a Democrat, and Thomas S. Butler, a Republican. Not surprised it happened in Pennsylvania. It's the Keystone State. I have friends from that state, and so many important things happen there. And I don't think it's I don't think it's really just a coincidence because they did call it the Keystone State, but it may not have anything to do with this. Now we'll continue to read. That's just an aside there. Mr. Bonnewell, the unsuccessful candidate, filed an objection with the Speaker of the House asking that Mr. Butler not be seated to represent the district. His objections were investigated by a House Committee on Elections, which prepared a report, House Report 1523. That report was submitted to the House on February 15, 1913, 
and upon the request of the Congress, Congressman Olmsted was included in the congressional record. The House report reproduced in its entirety Mr. Bonowell's written statement of objections, among other items. Mr. Bonowell's objection included the following discussion of religious slanders perpetrated by supporters of Mr. Butler. The Westchester Village Record is a local newspaper largely owned and controlled by the T.L. Irie, Republican boss of Chester County and perpetual representative of Thomas S. Butler. The Chester Republican is a local paper owned and controlled by Senator William C. Sproul, a Republican boss and personal representative of Thomas S. Butler in Delaware County. On August 15, 1912, the Westchester Village Record published the following editorial. The Honorable Thomas S. Butler, the Republican nominee for Congress, was born and reared in the Society of Friends and is proud of his Quaker ancestry. His opponent, Eugene C. Bonowell, is a Roman Catholic. On August 28, 1912, the Chester Republican reprinted this editorial. Coincident with the two said editorial messengers in the employ of supporters of Thomas S. Butler traversed the district having in their possession and circulating a blasphemous and infamous libel, a copy of which is hereto attached, pretended to be an oath of the Knights of Columbus, of which body the contestant, Bonowell, is a member. So revolting are the terms of this document, and so nauseating its pledges, that the injury, it did not merely to the contestant, but also to the Knights of Columbus, and to Catholics in general, can hardly be measured in terms. I charge that the circulation of this oath and the publication of the two editorials herein referred to were part of a conspiracy for the purpose of arousing religious rancor and of defeating the Democratic nominee. The Constitution of the United States prohibits any religious test for office. This organization supporting Thomas S. Butler created such a test, blazed bigotry in the hearts and minds of the ignorant, and slandered and vilified a great body of honorable men. And there's two more paragraphs. It's just a refutation of this so-called oath. But it goes on to say to the candidate, you state in this paragraph of your objection that an editorial publication was made in these papers as follows. While I never saw or heard of it until I read the paragraph of your objection, I admit the truthfulness of it with pleasure so far as it relates to me. I did not in any manner inspire it, since your notice served on me. Mr. Iyer informs me that he had not seen or heard of this article which you complain, although it appeared in his own newspaper. I have no knowledge of any man, set of men, political organization, or its representative employing or procuring messengers to traverse this congressional district and to circulate on my account or on any account the publication which you characterize as blasphemous and infamous libel known as the Knights of Columbus Oath. This paper was circulated through this congressional district during this campaign. I admit and regret. I deny that I had anything whatsoever to do directly or indirectly with either its publication or its circulation. It came into district through the mails. And as fast as it appeared, those who took my advice destroyed it. I am advised by those who know that the same article was circulated and distributed in other parts of Pennsylvania, 
than this congressional district during the last campaign. And I am further informed that this same article has been circulated not only in Pennsylvania, but in other states during political campaigns for many years. I had no knowledge whatever of it until it appeared here during the last campaign, and from a source I know nothing about. Two or three of my political advocates showed me copies of this paper, which they had received through the mails. I requested them to ascertain where other copies of it had been received and to have all of them destroyed. I apprehended with alarm the use of such a document into a political campaign or at any other time. I do not believe in this untruthfulness and so stated my judgment concerning it on November 4, 1912, as soon as compliant was made to me of its general circulation through the columns of the Westchester Daily Local News. Okay, and finishing up, the author of this article says, So what we have is a document anonymously circulated during a heated election campaign. Both sides disavowed its authenticity. It was included in a House report summarizing an investigation of that election because it was attached to a document submitted by one of the candidates. The report was reprinted in the congressional record. All in all, no sane person could conclude that this constitutes any sort of authentication of this document by Congress. Anyone who is interested in checking behind my research can read all about it. Any law school library will have a copy. The citation is HR Rep Number NO period 62 1523. 1913 was the year. Reprinted in the Congressional Record for February 15, 1913. And that's on pages 3215 through 3220. And it goes on to say I think that this, without a doubt, shows that neither oath is credible and allows me to point out that even Congress believes this to be so, because in the Congressional Record, the Committee on Elections states the following. This committee cannot condemn too strongly the publication of the false and libelous article referred to in the paper of Mr. Bonnewell, and which was the spurious Knights of Columbus Oath, a copy of which is appended to the paper and is reprinted in the Congressional Record for February 15, 1913. And it ends with the Bible verse, You shall not utter a false report, Exodus 23.1. So what we have there is, I believe, pretty solid evidence that the oath or oaths are not genuine. And I said in the beginning of the series that I thought the oath was too far out to be real because I don't believe, even if the Jesuits are as nefarious as some people believe they are and say they are, they would ever put that kind of thing in print. And I don't believe the Knights of Columbus would do that either because that's the type of thing that people get their heads cut off or burned at the stake for because of the sheer violence of the words of these oaths. So on one hand, we believe that the Jesuits are simply the most cunning, secretive organization in existence. And on the other, we think that they created this blood-curdling oath that's just almost too far out there to believe. I know, I know I'm going to get accused of being a Catholic and Jesuit apologist, but again, I'm just trying to find what's real, what's provable, and what's just theory. Now we'll move over to theory for sure, and this is a book by Bill Hughes, who is a seven-day Adventist preacher, pastor, 
who has talked about the New World Order, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, Bilderberg, and others for years and years and years. And he's kind of a reject of the Seventh-day Adventists. He has, I believe, left the church or been kicked out of the church some years back. And so he's kind of out there on his own. But he wrote this book, which I just stumbled upon, and I thought it was really interesting. Well, to him, the Jesuits are behind every bad event in America, every major bad event. So we'll take that perspective and we'll read a little bit into it. And you guys can make up your own minds at the end of the show, what you think, whether you think that Bill Hughes is right, the Jesuits are right, or it's somewhere in the middle there. He says here in the opening of the book, Target America, the United States must soon face the most deadly enemy it will ever have to face. The enemy is not the usual military enemy, but it has the organization and the capability for massive espionage and clandestine operations within the United States. It uses a facade that is virtually perfect to hide its operations. In fact, right now this enemy is working secretly to undermine the principles that made this country the greatest nation in the world. This enemy has infiltrated the highest levels and departments of the U.S. government and poses an extreme danger to America. Let us look a little at the history and understand the methods this enemy has used in the past and how it is secretly working today. Europe was finally at rest. The Napoleonic Wars were now over, having lasted nearly 20 years. The brilliant and crafty Napoleon had spread Europe with blood of her noblest sons. At long last, there was peace. In the aftermath, European sovereigns convened a general council in Vienna, Austria, in 1814. This council has become known as the Congress of Vienna. The Congress continued its proceedings for one year, ending in 1815. Then he reads from the Burke McCarty book, The Suppressed Truth About the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln, from 1924. Quote, the Congress of Vienna was a black conspiracy against popular governments at which the high contracting parties announced at its close that they had formed a holy alliance. This was a cloak under which they masked to deceive the people. The particular business of the Congress was developed the ratification of Article 6 of the Congress of Vienna, which was in short a promise to prevent or destroy popular governments wherever found, and to re-establish monarchy where it had been set aside. The high contracting parties of this compact, which were Russia, Prussia, which is Germany, Austria, and Pope Pius, king of the papal states, entered into a secret treaty to do so. Unquote. According to McCarty, the Congress of Vienna formed the Holy Alliance, whose primal goal was the destruction of all popular governments. Where have we heard that before? Popular governments are those where the government allows its subjects to enjoy certain inalienable rights. Can you think of any popular governments that were establishing themselves in the world and granting their citizens certain inalienable rights around the year 1815? Senator Robert L. Owen placed in the Congressional Record of April 25, 1916, the following statement, which shows clearly that he thought the primary target of the unholy alliance was the United States. The Holy Alliance, having destroyed popular government in Spain and in Italy, 
had well laid plans also to destroy popular government in the American colonies, which had revolted from Spain and Portugal in Central and South America under the influence of the successful example of the United States. It was because of this conspiracy against the American republics by the European monarchies that the great English statesman Canning called the attention of our government to do it. Senator Owen understood from the Congress of Vienna that the United Monarchies of Europe would seek to destroy the great American Republic and its blood-bought freedoms. Senator Owen was not the only one who knew about this conspiracy against American freedom and the Constitution. In 1894, R.W. Thompson, American Secretary of the Navy, wrote the following, The sovereigns of the Holy Alliance had massed large armies and soon entered into a pledge to devote them to the suppression of all uprisings of the people in favor of free government. And he, Pope Pius, desired to devote the Jesuits, supported by his pontifical power, to the accomplishment of that end. He knew how faithfully they would apply themselves to that work, and hence he counseled them in his decree of restoration to strictly observe the useful advices and salutary counsels whereby Loyola, had made absolution the cornerstone of the society. That is R.W. Thompson from the Footprints of the Jesuits in 1894. Thompson pinpointed exactly who would be the agents used by the monarchies of Europe to destroy the Republic of America, namely the Jesuits of Rome. Since 1815, there has been a continual assault on America by the Jesuits to try to destroy the constitutional rights of this great nation. The famous inventor of the Morse Code, Samuel B. Morse, also wrote of this sinister plot against the United States. The author undertakes to show that a conspiracy against the liberties of this republic is now in full action, under the direction of the wily Prince Metternich of Austria, who, knowing the impossibility of obliterating this troublesome example of a great and free nation by force of arms, is attempting to accomplish his object through the agency of an army of Jesuits. The array of facts and arguments going to prove this existence of such a conspiracy will astonish any man who opens the book with the same incredulity as we did. Samuel B. Morris, Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States, 1835. The array of books written that detail the sinister plots of the Congress of Vienna and the Jesuits against the American Republic are numerous. That this conspiracy has raged since 1815 is a fact of history. We will show that this conspiracy is in full force today and that it is the reason America is having so many problems at the present time and is so close to losing her freedoms. Most people know very little about the Pope's Jesuits. The reason for this is that they are a very secretive society. In order to understand what the order of the Jesuits is, please consider the following quotation. Throughout Christendom, Protestantism was menaced by formidable foes. The first triumphs of the Reformation passed, but Rome summoned new forces, hoping to accomplish its destruction. At this time, the Order of the Jesuits was created, the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery. Cut off from earthly ties and human interests, dead to the claims of natural affection, reason and conscience wholly silenced. They knew no rule or no tie but that of their order, and no duty but to extend its power. 
The gospel of Christ had enabled its adherents to meet danger and endure suffering, undismayed by cold, hunger, toil, and poverty, to uphold the banner of truth in the face of the rack and the dungeon and the stake. To combat these forces, Jesuitism inspired its followers with the fanaticism that enabled them to endure like dangers and to oppose the power of truth of all the weapons of deception. There was no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to practice, no disguise too difficult for them to assume. Vowed to perpetual poverty and humility, it was their studied aim to secure wealth and power, to be devoted to overthrow Protestantism and the reestablishment of the papal supremacy. When appearing as members of their order, they wore a garb of sanctity, visiting prisons and hospitals, ministering to the sick and the poor, professing to have renounced the world and bearing the sacred name of Jesus, who went about doing good. But under this blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were often concealed. It was a fundamental principle of the order that the ends justifies the means. By this code, lying, theft, perjury, and assassination were not only pardonable, but commendable when they served the interests of the church. Under various disguises, the Jesuits worked their way into offices of state, climbing up to be the counselors of the kings and shaping the policy of nations. They became servants to act as spies upon their masters. They established colleges for the sons of princes and nobles and schools for the common people, and the children of Protestant parents were drawn into an observance of popish rites. All the outward pomp and display of the Romish worship was brought to bear to confuse the mind and dazzle and captivate the imagination, and thus the liberty for which the fathers had toiled and bled was betrayed by the sons. The Jesuits rapidly spread themselves over Europe, and wherever they went, there followed a revival of popery. That was E.G. White, The Great Controversy, from 1911. Obviously, we're not going to read the entire Hughes book. It's a very short book, but still, that would take some time. But he, I think, does best to kind of bring about the earlier conspiracies, what people think the Jesuits did that was nefarious, and why in the modern age they've become such a controversial group. But again, we have to go back to the quotes from the Nesta Webster book. So let's go on a little bit farther and check out some more of this hidden history. Hughes says that the Jesuits function like the papacy's secret worldwide police. They are very, very secretive and go to great lengths to keep their operations secret. They tell no one that they are Jesuits. To all outside appearances, they appear as normal people. They are Jesuits. This society of men, after exerting their tyranny for upwards of 200 years, at length became so formidable to the world, threatening the entire subversion of all social order, that even the Pope, whose devoted subjects they are, and must be, by the vow of their society, was compelled to dissolve them. Pope Clement suppressed the Jesuit order in 1773. They had not all been suppressed, however. For 50 years before the waning influence of popery and despotism required their useful labors to resist the light of democratic liberty, and the Pope, Pope Pius, simultaneously with the formation of the Holy Alliance in 1815, 
revive the order of the Jesuits in all their power. And do Americans need to be told what Jesuits are? They are a secret society, a sort of Masonic order with super-added features of revolting odiousness and a thousand times more dangerous. They are not merely priests or of one religious creed. They are merchants and lawyers and editors and men of any profession, having no outward badge by which to be recognized. They are about in all your society. They can assume any character, that of angels of light or ministers of darkness, to accomplish their one great end. They are all educated men, prepared and sworn to start at any moment and in any direction and for any service commanded by the general of their order, bound to no family, community, or country by the ordinary ties which bind men, and sold for life to the cause of the Roman pontiff. That was J. Wayne Lawrence from a book called The Crisis in America or The Enemies of America Unmasked from 1855. So we see there's been a lot of warnings in books written about the Jesuits early on. They've been controversial pretty much from the start. But we also have to remember, though, that the Jesuits were formed at the time of the Reformation and formed to fight the Protestants in that Reformation. So a lot of the things we read are coming from a Protestant background, and so obviously they're going to be against the Jesuits. So we have to ask ourselves, how many liberties are these Protestant authors taking in writing against their enemies? And I hope that we would ask the same thing about Catholic authors writing about Protestants. Hughes continues, Ignatius Loyola founded the Jesuit order in the 1540s. Its position in the Roman Catholic Church was solidified during the Council of Trent, which ran from 1546 to 1563. The Council of Trent was convened with one great goal in mind, how to stop the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation began in 1517 when Martin Luther, the fearless German friar, nailed his 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. The Thesis challenged, among other things, the heinous doctrine of indulgences taught by Rome that declared a man could save himself and loved ones by dropping enough coins into the Catholic Church's coffers. That reminds me of some of the videos I've been seeing on Instagram about the Rabbi Sneerson from the Chabad Lubavitch organization. I'll have to turn you guys on to that profile. I'm forgetting what it's called at the moment, but we'll continue. Luther's great teachings that the Bible only is the standard for all doctrine and practice and that a person is justified before God through the faith in Jesus Christ alone sent thrills through the hearts of thousands throughout Europe and shockwaves through the halls of the Vatican. So, you know, uh, there's going to be people who are not religious and don't know any of this stuff, and that's totally fine. Uh, You have to kind of think about how it wasn't just two factions of religion fighting. It was a change in the entire hierarchy of the church, and the church was part of the government. If you want to think about it this way, Martin Luther basically put a crack in the entire governing system that had been in place for many, many hundreds and thousands of years because this was showing that you didn't need this hierarchy and these popes and these priests to actually become right with God. 
and to get to know God and to get to know Jesus Christ. You didn't need those guys in all of their governing, uh, if you want to call it red tape and bureaucracy, that's exactly what it was. I'm not saying that that didn't invent problems of its own. You see these different organizations forming and all these different sects of Christianity forming, which was both good and bad, but we just have to understand what this Reformation actually presented. It wasn't just like the Baptists and the Methodists fighting. It was something very much bigger than that, and it went worldwide. And to continue, thus the Council of Trent was convened to counter the Reformation. Hence, it is known as the Counter-Reformation, and the Jesuits would be the chief tools of Rome to undo and destroy every trace of Protestantism wherever it was found. America's two greatest documents, Hughes says, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, are filled with Protestant declarations that are absolutely intolerable to the Jesuits of Rome. Does it surprise you that the Vatican condemns the founding documents of the United States? The Vatican condemned the Declaration of Independence as a wickedness and called the Constitution of the United States a satanic document. That was from Avro Manhattan in his book, The Dollar and the Vatican, from 1988. In a letter from John Adams to then-President Thomas Jefferson about the Jesuits, we read, Shall we not have regular swarms of them here, in as many disguises as only a king of the gypsies can assume, dressed as painters, publishers, writers, and schoolmasters? If ever there was a body of men who merited eternal damnation on earth and in hell, it is this society of Loyola's. We know that Adams was a staunch anti-Mason as well. Now we have a quote from Napoleon. He said, The Jesuits are a military organization, not a religious order. Their chief is a general of an army, not the mere father abbot of a monastery. And the aim of this organization is power. Power in its most despotic exercise. Absolute power. Universal power. Power to control the world by the volition of a single man. Jesuitism is the most absolute of despotisms, and at the same time, the greatest and most enormous of abuses. The general of the Jesuits insists on being master, sovereign over the sovereign. Wherever the Jesuits are admitted, they will be masters, cost what it may. Their society is by nature dictatorial, and therefore it is a reconcilable enemy of all constituted authority. Every act, every crime, however atrocious, is a meritorious work, if committed for the interest of the society of Jesus or by the order of the general. There was no disguise they could not assume, and therefore there was no place in which they could not penetrate. They could enter, unheard, the closet of the monarch or the cabinet of the statesman. They could sit unseen in convocation or general assembly and mingle unsuspected in the deliberations and debates. There was no tongue they could not speak and no creed they could not profess. And thus, there was no people among them who they might not sojourn and no church whose membership they might not enter and whose functions they might not discharge. They could extricate the Pope with the Lutheran and swear the solemn league with the Covenanter. That was J.A. Wiley in his History of Protestantism, Volume 2. The earlier quote by Napoleon, I would just say that we have to remember that Napoleon was also a Freemason, and we know that the Freemasons and the Jesuits were mortal enemies. 
In the light of these statements, several questions arise, Hughes says. Since the Jesuits began a direct assault on America in 1815, and nothing stands in their way, then are the policies carried out today in America under the control of this despot of Rome, meaning the Pope? Have the assassinations of presidents like Abraham Lincoln, William McKinley, James Garfield, and William Henry Harrison been Jesuit-inspired? Have the atrocities like Waco, Oklahoma City, and the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York City been planned behind the walls of the Vatican? What about our precious Constitution and the Bill of Rights that have come under such unrelenting attack in the past few decades? Is this the ultimate prize of the Jesuits, to annihilate our precious freedoms that were purchased at so great a cost? And just a little bit more here. As if the Congress of Vienna was not clear enough as to the objectives of the European monarchs and the Jesuit order, there were two more congresses that were convened. The first of these was held at Verona in 1822. During this congress, it was decided that America would be the target of Jesuit emissaries and that America was to be destroyed at all costs. Every principle of the Constitution was to be dissolved and new Jesuitical principles were to be put in place in order to exalt the papacy to dominion in America. The other meeting was held in Chiri, Italy in 1825. Here is what was decided there. In 1825, some 11 years after the revival of the Jesuit order, a secret meeting of leading Jesuits was held at their college in Chiri near Turin in northern Italy. At the gathering, plans were discussed for the advancement of papal power worldwide for the destabilization of governments who stood in the way and for the crushing of all opposition to Jesuit schemes and ambitions. What we aim at is the empire of the world. We must give them, the great men of earth, to understand that the cause of evil, the bad leaven, will remain as long as Protestantism shall exist, that Protestantism must therefore be utterly abolished. Heretics are the enemies that we are bound to exterminate. Then the Bible, that serpent which the head erect and eyes flashing, threatens us with its venom, while its trails along the ground shall be changed into a rod as soon as we are able to seize it. That was Hector McPherson in the Jesuits in History from 1997. All right, guys, this concludes The Company You Keep Part 2. Stay tuned for Part 3 coming soon. And I want to get right to it and thank the people who helped me make this show. Thank you to my patrons. And if you want to be a supporter of the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank my friend Ruckus from Alternate Current Radio. He is a producer of the show. Thank you, Ruckus. Please check out his show, The Daily Ruckus, on alternatecurrentradio.com. And also check him out on Joseph Arthur's Technicolor Dreamcast on TNT Radio. Thank you to No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you to Refsad. Thank you, Jay, Chris, Mark from Housatonic Live. Check out his YouTube. Fantastic information there. Thank you to James. Thank you to Bill, a covert conspirator. Thank you to Peterson. Thank you, Rooster. Thank you, John Brisson. Check out John's incredible work. He puts out probably more content than anyone I know. 
Check him out on Twitter at weave underscore red. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Be sure and subscribe to his YouTube channel and check out the audio of his podcast on all your fine podcasting platforms. And last but not least, thank you, James. Now, there are three tiers on my Patreon. There is the number one tier, which is the Society of Cryptic Savants. And once you get there, I try to give you the shows early when I can. But I've also started a Patreon-only show to kind of say thank you, and you will get that as well. The show is called Terrible Tweets, and what happens is I just look at some tweets that jump out at me. I discuss what they mean, what they mean to me. I discuss the people tweeting them and those kinds of things, and it's been really fun so far. So I do that two times a month. Now, there's also the Covert Co-Conspirators, and you get a shout-out from me if you like. I will promote whatever you want me to within reason. And also, you will be able to access the Odd Book Club. And that is where I go over a rare book, discuss it, mention some quotes from it, and kind of talk about what it means to me and what it could mean to you. And above that is the producer level, which Ruckus is a part of. So you also get all of that with the producer level and more. And you can check out those tiers, the descriptions of each one on my Patreon. And that'll be in the show notes as well. Now, I also want to thank my podcasting home, alternatecurrentradio.com. Be sure and check out all their fine music and talk shows, including The Boiler Room, which is their flagship show. And remember, I said you can find The Daily Ruckus on there as well. Now, also, I want to thank fringeradionetwork.com for posting up the oddcast. And also, while I'm thinking about it, check out The Brian McLean Show on TNT Radio as well. Brian is better known as Hesher on Alternate Current Radio, The Boiler Room, The Hessian Sessions, many, many great shows. So check out his show on TNT Radio. It's fantastic. Great guests, lots of geopolitical talk, all things foreign and domestic. So check out that show as well. And I thank you guys. Hope you're doing well. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.